How are we doing this morning? Man, y'all made it. Y'all, the, y'all are the, the warriors, right? You braved the storm to come, get out in the rain. Because you're probably like us, man. Everything in you was just like, oh, man, it rain outside. It's kind of nice. We just stay right here. Uh, but that's not what we do. We get up, we get our families to church, right? Rain or shine. Unless there's a little bit of ice on the ground, and it's like, no, nah, forget that. Go get your bread and milk, and that's it. Um, so, guys, I just want to say, man, what a blessing this has been to to be interim pastor here for the last couple of months. Um, I mean, I find myself, you know, thinking about this, and my mind's starting to get just kind of weighed down, you know. It's getting toward the end of school, so my regular Monday through Friday, you know, there's kind of a lot of... You know, pressure kind of getting built up on it toward the end of school. I even kind of have to go meet, uh, meet with our superintendent of education tomorrow, you know, about some things. So it's like, ah, you know. And then I, when I'm not thinking about that, I'm thinking about here and Lifeline Community Church. And what do, you, what do you say, Lord? You've chosen me to lead these people. And, you know, I'm doing the best I can. I can't do it without you. You know, just give me a clean hands, pure heart, Lord, and just let me just follow you in your ways. It's becoming a, a it's, it's becoming tougher. And this week, as I was trying to to put a message together, thinking, you know, what am I going to tell them? It's like every time I sat down to try to put a message together, it just wouldn't happen. And God's like, "No, I don't want you doing that. I just want you spending time with me." And I'd put on a worship song and just sit there and just listen to it and just try to glorify and honor God. And I'd turn to a psalm and just try to memorize it, just read it over and over and over until it was mine, until I was, those words were mine. And, you know, I'm like, you know, Lord, I still got a sermon on Sunday, you know. I mean, this is all good, but you got to help me out a little bit. And, uh, you know, I got to thinking, well, well, last week I talked to you about, uh, you know, the acts of the flesh. They're very obvious. They're, uh, you know, it's very easy to see. And we talked about some of those, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, uh, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath. There were 17 in all, if you use uh, the King James Version. And so, uh, you know, I talked about those. And then I picked up, I read an old story in the Bible, and I'm like, that's what happens if you sow to the lusts of the flesh. That's what happens if that's what you're all about. If your heart's unclean and you start gravitating toward worldly possessions, especially worldly possessions you don't have, this is a picture of what happens. So, so I think God wants me to, to just basically read this story in the Bible, and I'm just kind of going to point out a few things. It's not going to get a whole lot of help from me, not that the Bible needs any help. It's a very good commentary in its own, in itself. And so... Uh, the title of my sermon, I do have a title this week, uh, had uh, some, some suggestions from last week, maybe when it goes on the website we'll use one of those titles, because I couldn't think of a title. But this week, uh, it's time for war. Let's pray. Father God, thank you just for your presence in this place, man, when they, they're singing how great thou art, Lord, and the little part when Christ shall come with, with shouts of acclamation. Lord, what joy is going to fill 
my soul when you come back, Lord. And with all my heart, I was just sitting there thinking, Lord, I want to be ready. I want to be prepared. I don't want to be somebody just barely doing enough to get in, Lord. I want to, I want to be on fire for you. I want, to, I want to be glorifying you and honoring you in every moment of every day of my life, Lord. And I believe that's the heart of the, the people that, that chose to come out to Lifeline Community Church today, Lord. So will you just uh, equip us? Will you just fill our spirits with your spirit, Lord, so that, so that we may obey your, your word? Because... Because you say in your word, if we love you, then we'll honor, then we'll obey your word. If you love me, then keep my commands, you tell us, in your word. So Lord, help us to do just that. And just fill us up with a little more knowledge, a little more spirit, so that we can leave here. And go into our work weeks, Lord, and, and just let everybody else see that there is something different about us. And Lord, just give us the opportunity to tell them what it is. It's you. And your son and what you did on the cross, Lord, you took our sins and you made us brand new and you made us clean. We didn't earn our cleanness. There was no righteousness or any amount of Bible reading or anything we could do to make ourselves clean. You gave us cleanness. You gave us righteousness, Lord. And just help us rejoice in that, Lord, and to go out and do whatever it is you've asked us to do and honor you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So... We're going to read a story, a very, very familiar story from 2 Samuel, chapter 11. And it's a lot of stuff. Um, so, I was kind of going to go through it. I'm pretty much going to read from a Bible. I usually look at the screens, but hopefully they'll all uh, match up. So, in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, and just because uh, just I want you to do this, if you have your Bible, show it to me. If you, if, you, if you still bring it, man, that's awesome right there, man. I mean, I like the screens and I like everything, but there's something about picking up that Bible off your table or wherever it's been all week and bringing it to church. I take this one wherever I go. I take it uh, to school. It just sits on my desk. I have some kids every once in a while just grab it and look something up. And um, I was taking it to work the other day and somebody said, uh, is that the, or I had it in my, my car and they said, Hey, is that still the same Bible you was bringing to school 10 years ago? I'm like, yeah, that's the same one. So uh, they're like, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I still love Bibles. I like screens, and I'm glad technology. But, you know, there was a chance time that they didn't have these screens, and they just <laughs> used, the, used the Bible. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, Okay, that's a good, one of the reasons I picked this, and I think God's just amazing, because spring is this week. I think it's Thursday. It's going to be the first day of spring. And what, does, what do kings do in the spring? They go out to war. It's time to fight. And, as I, and I've noticed this in my own heart, in my own life, as, as the weather gets warmer, you know, it seems like I get a little bit less intense toward my pursuit of God. And, you know, in the summer, when I'm off for two months from teaching, you would think that would be the time that I just kind of, I still get up early and I still pursue Him with all my heart, but I find that it kind of fades. And I find myself looking more forward to the regular routine of work because I get up at five and I do my devotions. But, you know, in the summer... You know, I may go back to sleep and then say, well, I got all day to kind of do this. And then I find that I don't and I get 
weaker and I get weaker. And I'm like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then this is a great reminder, and it is spring, and kings go off to war. I'm working on a sermon called, Is There a King in Your House? And it's just about what kind of king you are, what kind of leader you are. And in the springs, real good kings go off to war. It's time to fight. David sent somebody else. He sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And just some thoughts right on that. You know, I think about how some parents, you know, their, their kids kind of start getting in trouble and everything. And then they're starting, they say, well, here, they're at school. Those teachers need to fix them. And you know, and, I, and my, me personally, I get 50 minutes a day with, with kids, you know, however they come through. And I try my hardest to influence them toward, toward right. And, but I got them 50 minutes a day. They're going to be with their parents a lot longer. And I know it's part of my responsibility, but it's not my sole responsibility. And I think about how troubled kids, a parent will say, here, go to this youth group. It's time for you to go to the church. And here, youth minister, fix them. You know, that's not going to work. You don't send somebody else to do the king's job. It's spring. It's time to go to war. You don't send other people to do your job. Now, they did a good job. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David was a king. David was a great king. He was the one who slew Goliath. He's the one when people sing their songs, they say, wow, Saul now, he's slain his thousands, but David, he's slain his tens of thousands. David was a mighty king, but for some reason, he stops fighting. He chooses not to fight. Now, some of those things I mentioned um, last time was, one of the words was uncleanness, the desires of your heart, what you gravitate toward. And what you'll find is when you stop fighting, it's kind of like you stop cleaning your heart and things start building up in there and you'll start gravitating toward the things of the world and all those glittery things like that song was saying, start looking more and more attractive. But, so David's heart becomes unclean because he stops fighting. He stops pursuing God, you know, no more, the Lord, you are my shepherd. I shall not want for anything. He gets away from that. And this can happen to every single one of us. It certainly happens to me more often than I would like to forget. But it's spring, and I plan on going to war because I do not want my heart to become unclean and start gravitating toward the things of this world. And so here's how we know what it, that this is true, that it starts gravitating toward those things. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, in my mind, now one of the reasons that, uh, that these women are bathing on the roof is, you know, in the, back then... You know, we, we take this completely for granted. You know, you turn on the nice hot water, take the hot bath, take the hot shower and everything just at the turn of a knob. Well, they didn't have that back then. So what they would do, especially in the spring, is they would fill up a big old tub of water and let it sit there all day because the sun would heat that water and it would be warm by the evening so you could take a fairly comfortable bath. Now, you know, was David aware of this? I don't know. Maybe. 
Probably, I would even say. So it's just kind of like the, uh, the equivalent of us, you know, a man today kind of getting on a computer late at night. You know, what do you gravitate toward? What websites do you go for when you think nobody else is looking? This is kind of what I think of David doing here. The woman was very beautiful, okay? And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, whoever he asked, and this is a pretty dangerous thing this man is saying because he's telling the king, he's like trying to put the king a little bit in his place, and if the king wanted to, he could say, hey, you're talking to me like that? You know, he could, off with his head, he could have this guy killed. But this is a very bold man who says, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. This woman is off limits to you king she is another man's wife i don't know what you're thinking but here's you a nice little warning from me this is another man's wife and then one of those other things when you sow to the flesh was strife strife is i'll do whatever i have to do and i will crush whoever i have to in order to get what i want so you know our uncleanness has led to strife and even Uh, A little bit of envy already. So we see what this uncleanness is leading up to. So David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Okay, so all of these things went from uncleanness to strife and envy to adultery. You know, he just committed adultery. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And the lusts of the flesh, the works of the flesh are obvious. We see this stuff playing out. He is not fighting. He chose not to fight. He chose to stay home. He's somewhere he should not be looking at something he should not be looking at and going after something that is unlawful, it goes against God, that goes everything he knows about God. So David sent his word. So she's pregnant. So what am I going to do now? You know, do I admit it and say, man, I really messed up. I'm going to hate this. This ain't going to go down good. He tries to cover it up. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Okay. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab um, how Joab was, how the soldiers were. And how the war was going. He shouldn't be asking this because he's supposed to be the one out there fighting himself, not sending somebody else to do this. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. You know, he don't really want him to wash his feet. He wants him to sleep with his wife, so maybe we can cover this up. So Uriah left the palace. And a gift from the king was sent after him. You know, not because the king wants to lavish him with a gift, because he wants the person who brings that gift to find out where Uriah is, or if it looks like he might have slept with his wife. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and didn't go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? This is the only time Uriah speaks. Listen to these words. Uriah said to David, the ark... And Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open 
country, king, let me tell you what's going on. The ark, you remember that thing that contains the presence of God? It's out there in an open field with men trying to defend it and defend our country and gain more territory. The ark and its presence is out there. What are we doing here? This is kind of a shot at David. Man, we're supposed to be out there fighting. The presence of God is out there, not here in Jerusalem with us doing nothing, asking about the war and asking about all these things. Our men is out there. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, King David, I will not do such a thing. What a, what a speech from Uriah. And that's all we're ever going to hear from him in the Bible. Then David said to him, stay here one more day. Tomorrow, I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. So look at this. We've already got adultery. We've got uh, uncleanness. We've got strife. Um, we've got envy. Um, we've got drunkenness. You know, he's throwing in this, this little party atmosphere, trying to get... Uh, you could probably even argue witchcraft, because he's trying to alter his mind to get his mind off of other things and do the things that he wants him to do to cover up all this sin. I mean, we've got just about all of these acts of the flesh covered. David's covering them all. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. It's not time to be enjoying this stuff, King. It's time to be fighting for the presence of God. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. He's going to use his enemy's weapons to kill this man. Then withdraw for him so he'll be struck down and die. Same guy that wrote, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, surely goodness and mercy. So follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How did he get here? How is he plotting murder? How did he get this far? He stopped fighting. That's all he did. He just said, I'm going to take, take, take some time off. I'm going to get on the sidelines and just kind of let, let, let somebody else do the work. I'm just going to kind of hang out here. He stopped fighting. And this is where one thing led to another, led to another. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army failed. Some of the men, that is plural. This is not uh, just Uriah. So when we start thinking about, oh, it's my sin, and this is, I'm covering this up, it's not hurting anybody else. What about these men who got put in this situation with Uriah, and they had to die too? Other people, other Women lost their husbands. Other children lost their daddies who didn't do anything wrong, who just got parted, took part in this little cover-up that David's, David's kind of uh, conjuring up here. So other men fail. We read right over that. Some of the other men in David's army fail. What about them? We're talking about Uriah because he's kind of one of the main characters here because it's his wife that David slept with. But what about those men? 
Don't ever think that just your sin is all about you and it's not hurting anybody but you. It hurts other people as well. Other people get affected by sin. And so some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, exactly what King David wanted to happen, Uriah the Hittite died. So we get to add murder to that list of acts of the flesh. Joab sent David a full account of the Bible. He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on, on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? You can, he's like, listen, David knows Judges chapter 9. He's read that story. He knows you don't get too close to a wall where people can just drop stuff on you and kill you. He's like, he knows war taxes, and this looks almost irresponsible on my part. So whatever Joab did, he did it in a matter which he thought, well, king may not like this because we did do some things that he knew we wouldn't do otherwise. Um, why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked that, if he asked you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So this is supposed to calm the king in his anger when he realizes he lost a, a lot more men than just Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the men, some of the king's men, plural, died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So is David going to be angry? Is he going to be furious? Is he going to be mad? David told his messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. You know, the sword devours one as well as the other. No big deal. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Okay? One of those other words that I read to you was heresies. Divisive groups within the church who are selfish and self-seeking. Cliques who do things their own way to destroy the unity of the church. And that's what David's doing here. He's got his own things in mind. He's saying things that if he were out there fighting, he would never see. He would never tolerate this person to be lost on his account if he were out there fighting. Okay? And when we're out there fighting, when we're fighting, you say no. You know, like when I went to that other sermon. Yeah, they may, the Egypt and the Nile may be getting their children, but they're not getting mine. They're not getting my children. I will fight to them. They will not go to hell on my watch. I will fight for them. But when you stop fighting, you just anything goes. Well, if they want to hang around with those friends, well, don't worry about it. If they want to go to that concert, well, no big deal. If they want to start putting that on their iPod, no big deal. And you just stop fighting. He said, say this to encourage Joab. Joab's out there fighting. He's probably not going to be encouraged that he's lost men. So, let's keep going. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, 
and she became his wife and bore him a son. So after all that work, he's finally covered it up. So everything's going to be fine, right? No, because the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, from here, and you can go on to the next, set up the next chapter here. I love, you know, from, from here on out, he thinks everything's good to go. And, you know, he, he does, he's displeased God, and he don't know that yet. But God had, did send word to a, to a man named Nathan, a preacher named Nathan. And you imagine being Nathan having to go to king, the king to confront them with their sin. And I'm sure he's thinking, man, how am I going to do this? Am I just going to go in there and say, king, you did this? You know, he's like, how am I going to do this? So Nathan does this amazing thing. He grabs a hold of David's heart by telling him a story, takes him back to a time when he was fighting, when he was protecting sheep, and he knew what it was like to be a shepherd and fight for his flock, where he is no longer doing this in real life with his people now. So Nathan comes to him and he tells him this story. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. One rich, the other poor. Okay, so already he's already set up. Let's see, I've got to find a way to let David know he's the rich guy and Uriah is the poor guy. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, to which David, of course, had hundreds and hundreds of wives. He had plenty of people he could have slept with, made love with. But the poor man had nothing except the one ewe lamb he had brought. All Uriah had was Bathsheba, and he loved her. Okay, And the poor man had nothing except the one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, it grew up with him, and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And I guarantee you, David would go back in his mind and say, yes, man, I remember those little lambs that, that I loved and those special ones. He's like, so you know, David's starting to get his old shepherd juices flowing in his mind. Now a traveler came to the rich man. And the traveler represents the thought. You know, so whatever it was that came to his mind, when he was out on that rooftop, a traveler came through his mind and he saw Bathsheba. Now, what he should have done right there is the same thing all of us should He should have run. He should have got away with it and said, what am I doing here? I'm not going here. It's time for me to, to get to war. Where's my sword? Where's my, my shield? I'm going out here. He should have got away from all this, but he, he entertained that traveler. The rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now imagine that. You've got hundreds of flocks and your neighbor has one and you know they love that lamb. You're like, well, I'm not taking one of mine and you go over there and you kill it. You go drain it of its blood and prepare it so you can feed your guest. Of course David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
And he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Finally, his anger is aroused. Now, you've got to notice this, guys. He, David basically got to claim his own punishment here. He said, that man deserves to pay four times. And if you go on to read the very next chapters called Amnon and Tamar, and Amnon rapes his sister, defiles her, basically puts her kind of useless for society and marriage and any kind of normal life. And so Amnon did... Did that, and you know, you think about Amnon's thought process. Well, I want my half sister. Well, you're not supposed to have your half sister. Well, my dad wasn't supposed to have Bathsheba either, but he just went ahead and took her, and he gets what he wants, and he just goes ahead and takes it. So, what's to keep me from doing what I want to do? So, once again, if I think my sin only affects me, no. How I treat my wife is going to reflect on how Jameson, my little boy, treats his. So I don't ever want to put him in a situation where he sees me doing something so that it gives him a license to do the same thing. And so Nathan said to David, Guess what, king? You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. You remember all that? I gave your master's house to you. And your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? Why did you despise and hatred? I believe everything is good to, to go in with... Uh, so hatred, I, I, he takes that hatred and he's like... Um, why did you hate me? And to which David would have to be like, hate you? I didn't hate you. I just kind of quit fighting. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what's evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, the sword of your enemies. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. Once again, despised Hated him? I don't know if I hated him. I just kind of quit fighting for him. I just let my heart get away from him and it started gravitating toward other things. But God says, I mean, I look at that as you despise me. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Eleven. I didn't have you in right there, did I? Okay. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. It's just another lesson. That whatever we do in secret, man, God will bring, expose publicly. I mean, I think about the course of my life in 38 years. And those preachers who have done things in secret... And then they end up getting exposed and they get put in the papers. He's like, you don't get to do anything in secret. He said, if you do something in, in secret, I'll expose it to the whole world. So as I think about me, my number one job is to stay pure and stay clean and to just keep following God and make sure I don't do anything in secret that displeases Him because He'll bring it 
to, the, to light. He'll bring it for everybody to see. That's just what he does. So, of course, he would love to make me some sort of rock star preacher, mega church, and have, you know, the devil would love to have for me to have some secret sin. Say, oh, yeah, look at all these people he's leading. And, man, it's about to all come crashing down because I've got him. You know, I've got him. So, you did this in secret, but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, finally, he says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, look how quick this is. Look at all he did. Now, we would sit there and say, you know, most, most Christians today, you know, if David said that, said, that's right, you have, and you're going to hell. You'd be glad when you burn there and all that kind of stuff. And so, but Nathan says, the Lord's taken away your sin. Just like that. Over. You know, the Lord has taken away your sin. Guess what, David? You are not going to die. Now, this next one right here, guys, this messed with me for about two years. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I fought with God over this. Because, but by doing this, you've shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. The son born, the one who just came out of his mom and has done nothing wrong but be born in this sinful situation, that son is going to die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord, read that, guys. This messed with me forever. The Lord struck the child. Who struck the child? The devil? No, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and it became ill. Now... When Tanya and I were going through those two miscarriages, I thought for sure, and, you know, the first one I kind of just let slide. I was kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're okay, this will happen, this kind of happened. The second one, I was mad. And I go and I come across this story, and I read where the Lord struck the child. And, guys, I started thinking, this is God paying me back for the way that I lived in my high school, college days. This is This is... This is just what, what happens, you know. And then once again, I kind of get like, like David here. He's saying, you ain't supposed to strike the kid. Do this to me. I'm the one who did this. Why are you taking this out on the kid? And the more I read that, the angrier I got. Like, Lord, that's not right. David did all of this stuff, and you're striking his kid who didn't do anything wrong. Lord, surely even you know what's wrong with that. You know, what's wrong with that? And, and I just kept stewing on it for months, guys, months. And one time, it's, I mean, it's like God just got fed up with me. And say, Adam, if, I, if that, that kid, that kid represents my son, Jesus Christ, and if my son hadn't have paid for your sin, even though he never did anything wrong, guess what, Adam? You wouldn't even be able to be saved. He just got on to me one day, and it's like it just got it. I just got it. The innocent paid for his dad's sin. And then I got it up until that point when I was 16 years old and the things I would do after I was 16 years old. When I gave my heart to the Lord, He took my sin. Guess who the one who deserved to die was? Me. I've made plenty of decisions knowing it was wrong, knowing it went against God. And I've done, it just didn't lead up to murder maybe like it did David, but I guarantee you several times it kept somebody else from being saved. It kept somebody else saying, well, hey, if that's the way a Christian acts, I don't want to be a Christian. Maybe it kept them from asking the Lord into their heart. 
And so when I ask for forgiveness, Jesus, or God, you know, God says, all right, Adam, I forgive you. You will not die. But because you did this, take another look at the cross of Christ at Calvary because he took your sin on that day and he paid for them. You won't die, but guess who does? Adam, my son. That is how Christianity works. That's what it's all about. You bring your sin down here. And it's not just, oh, you're forgiven. It is, you're forgiven, but you need to see what has to happen here. Your sin goes on. My son, he pays them. The only reason you're clean and you get to live is because he took the sin. He took the payment. He did all of this. And so then I look at that and say, oh man, the baby, man, he's a pretty special character in the stories, man. He got to represent God. He took his dad's sin, gave his life so that his dad may live exactly what Jesus Christ did for me, gave his life so that I may live and I may be clean. The only, while they were singing clean hands, I'm like, I got to have clean hands and a pure heart. So I had to come over here and just kneel for a little bit and say, Lord, I'm nobody. Who am I to get to come up here and tell them? Because I've done a lot of this stuff, man. And I'm just, I'm just a dude trying to live it out, Lord. Who am I to get up here and lead your people? Give me clean hands. Give me a pure heart. Be on this message and help others to, to want the same thing. So you see where sowing the seeds of the flesh ends up. And look at Galatians chapter 6. And Marcus, if you want to make your way on up. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 9. Don't be deceived. God can't be mocked. You can't go out here and cover up a bunch of sins and acts of unrighteousness and acts of the flesh. A man reaps what he sows. If you throw out fleshly seed, guess what? You're going to reap destructive results. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Exactly what David reaped. Remember, Tamar got raped. Amnon raped her. He lost the boy, the son. That was That's three people right there. Absalom got mad at, uh, at Amnon, murdered him, and later on, Absalom got murdered or got killed by Joab. So that's Four kids, guess what he said? He said, that man deserves to pay four times. And that's exactly what he paid. He paid four times for what he did. Exactly what he said that man should have paid when he thought it was all about a lamb. But when he found out it was all about people, it was more than he wanted to pay. Sin will always make you pay more than you're willing to pay. But whosoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And guys, that's all I'm here to do today, man, is just beg you guys. Let's us as a church, as spring draws near, it's time for kings to go out to war. Let us not become weary and doing good. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. This is just this is just the beginning for this church. But this, you guys are the foundation of this church. What are we going to sow? Are we going to sow what our hearts gravitate toward? The flesh? No, because we'll reap destruction. 
Or are we going to go to war and say, God, I'm going to read this word. I'm going to pray to you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to fight with all my heart for my family and to keep sin as far away from me as I can and to keep your Holy Spirit in my heart as close as I possibly can. We will reap a harvest if we don't give up. I love the fact that Uriah the Hittite, such a major character, we have only his little his little story, his little um, quote that he says in the Bible that, that I read to you guys. But David, toward the end of his life, he was listing his mighty men. And he listed like 30 of them. By the end of the list, there's 37. Now, go ahead and go to 2 Samuel, because I forgot. I thought it was 20. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And at the very end of his list of mighty men, the last one he says, and Uriah the Hittite. I love that, man. He's like, I did this guy so wrong, but I want you to know at the end of my life as I finish this up, that Uriah the Hittite was a mighty man of God. He was doing everything I should have been doing in the first place. And so, guys, especially the men, if y'all will join with me down here, guys, and I just want you to ask God for a warring spirit as it becomes springtime, that we will not gravitate toward the things of the world, that we He will fill us with His Spirit, and we will be like Uriah the Hittite, a mighty man of God.